Hi, I'm Tracy. I'm April. And, and this, this is Killer Spirits. Welcome to episode 43. Episode 43. Yeah. We missed we, you last week. Yeah. You want to tell them why? Because you <laughs> you were injured. I fell down the stairs. <laughs> also, where's your thing? Uh, I don't have the sling anymore. I stopped using it after like day one because okay, it was good. super annoying. But it feels a lot better. It, my arm feels a lot better. Okay, good. But yeah, I couldn't even type. So I just gave up on life last weekend. <laughs> So thank you for being patient with us, but I am back. We're back with a good story today mm-hmm. that I'm kind of excited about. And I actually ran across this story during another one of our episodes, which I'll talk about. And so I've oh, kind okay. of had it in my back pocket for a while. And I thought, today's the day. Today's the day. <laughs> today's the, the day. Time. Yeah. Um, so today's cocktail is called the Top Hat. I love it. We'll go over the reasons for the top hat. And if you check out our Instagram at Killer Spirits Pod, you'll understand why it's called the top hat. Right. Because this guy had the most crisp top hat <laughs> in all of his pictures. Yeah. Was he, he ever was, not wearing a top hat? I don't know. There's one picture where he was wearing like a fur jacket. I'm going to post that too. Okay. And he looks so like he commissioned these photos of him. He he oh, felt himself. Let's yeah. put it that way. Okay. He fully felt himself. So if you imagine like what year is this? 1880s. Okay. 1890s. If you imagine a man in the late 1800s in a top hat, that's what this guy looks like. <laughs> 100% dead on. He's got the mustache. Handlebar sometimes. Handlebar. Yeah. yeah. With the crisp crispy top hat <laughs> crispy <laughs> so uh i found a couple of other names for a top hat because when i was thinking about naming this cocktail oh like oh it could be a high hat a okay. cylinder hat or a topper which a i like topper mm-hmm. i like topper that's cute um so just a little background on the top hat um it emerged in western fashion by the end of the 18th century so it was very in and very cool okay when he was wearing it um and it didn't decline in popularity until the counterculture of the 1960s so the top hat was popular all those years apparently interesting it was also called an opera hat so it was like what they wore to fancy events yeah but did they take it off because you couldn't see i think they did (laughs) i hope so yeah so, I just know that my dad wore a top hat to my brother's wedding. And oh, he yeah, he did. so freaking adorable. He I did. can't even. <laughs> I loved it. And he wore the tails and everything on his yeah. jacket. It was perfection. They both looked great. Yeah, it was so good. Um, And it always makes me think of the Monopoly man. Oh, yeah, the Monopoly man. I always want to be the hat. Yeah. And Monopoly or the dog. <laughs> I like being the dog. Well, who doesn't want to be the dog? Come on. So anyway, just like a little bit of history. Um, today's drink, delicious. It's so good. I mean, beyond. And so originally I thought this guy was British 
Because I guess I just looked up his Wikipedia because I don't like to get too far into the story because I want to hear it. I know. You, you know, so I don't dig that deep. Uh, he no, he's, he's not. not. So my original plan was something totally different. <laughs> so this is what kind of morphed into because yeah. he's essentially Canadian. Essentially. He's Scottish. Yeah. But he moved to Canada at a very he's young age. Canadian. Right. <laughs> so this drink is a little nod to the Canadian, like French Canadian. So good. I loved it. Here we go. So you're going to start with. One ounce of brandy. You could use cognac because I think that's the same thing. <sighs> I think it's the same thing. It's from, I think cognac is from the region of France. It's from a specific region. It's like champagne. Which is so like a France thing. Yeah. Is there anything else that's like champagne or cognac? Like it has to be from a place to yes. be called that? Scotch has to oh, be from yeah, Scotland. Scotch. And I guess bourbon has to be from... Kentucky? Uh, I think it just can be from the United States. Oh, okay. But yeah, no, there are definitely other things that have to be from specific Okay, I'm done. Whatever. So they're not. It's not just French. <laughs> it's not just Never France. Never mind. <laughs> okay, so it's one ounce of brandy, uh, half an ounce of cinnamon vodka. Which is stellar. Incredible. Which I thought I wouldn't like, but I love. It is not like a hot cinnamon. Like uh, It's not like a cinnamon candy. It is sort of a hot cinnamon. But it's not like a red like hot a or something. Red hot, yeah. It's like the spice. Yeah, it is like the it's spice. very good. Um, half an ounce of maple syrup. I use sugar-free maple syrup because that's what I had. But use whatever you want. Um, one ounce of, of vanilla vodka. Mm. One ounce of any chocolate liqueur, like a creamy kind, like Godiva. Yeah, I didn't use that brand, but. You catch my gr- my drift. My grift. You catch my grift. <laughs> it's not like uh, creme de cacao. That's yeah. like more of a thin, like sweeter one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also use some Aztec chocolate bitters, like maybe 10 dashes. Uh, two ounces of freshly brewed espresso and two ounces of half and half or heavy cream. So good. Shaken over ice in two coupe glasses. Didn't garnish it with anything but a few extra Aztec chocolate bitters. You really don't need to garnish it with anything. The drink just speaks for itself. It really does. It's it's going to be a rich drink. Like, I think you would mm-hmm. only be able to have one of these. And I just oh, yeah. feel like it's the perfect after-dinner drink because it's got the espresso in it. And it's just really nice. I love it. Or even to pair it with, like, your dessert. Or maybe it just is dessert. I don't know. I think, like... I added a little bit more espresso to mine. I took the leftover espresso and just poured oh. my drink in there. So mine's a little espresso heavy. Um, if you put like a tiny little scoop of ice cream in here, Ugh. like an affogato style. That would be amazing. So good. Try it. Try it and tell us what it's like. And if you feel like you're missing out and you can't make this drink because you don't have an espresso machine, you are so wrong. You could definitely do like really strong cold brew coffee or you could drive through any coffee place and get a couple of shots of espresso in a cup. They also do have instant espresso, which is you could pretty good. I've used it in things. And I think it would actually be pretty good in this drink. So you can do that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a possibility. So don't, don't feel like judge you're... people, April. Don't feel like you're left out because you don't have an espresso <laughs> machine. Because not a lot of people do. Yeah, I don't. 
Um, I do have a Nespresso, which still makes pretty good espresso. Mm -hmm. So if you have one of those, that would work. Well, and the only reason I'm not that bouge, the only reason I have an espresso machine is because regular coffee literally tears my stomach to bits. But you can have espresso. I don't know why. (laughs) It's like one of the mysteries of the world. Faster extracted (laughs) or something. It's less acidic. Faster extracted. It's extracted faster. (laughs) So like the acid doesn't. It doesn't get as acidy. That's funny. I will like die. I don't. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> well, I'm glad. You I will be like curled over in pain. <laughs> well, don't do that. So if anybody, uh, if anybody's a doctor that's listening, my doctor <laughs> was not helpful <laughs> at all. Because your doctor's like, you make no sense. Yeah, my doctor's <laughs> like, um, just take Pepsid. It'll oh. be fine. I, I like Pepsid. That's like, for sure. Ugh, I'll just stop drinking coffee. It's fine. Yeah, actually, that's probably the best. But then I found out that espresso works for me. So oh, maybe because it's a smaller amount. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. We're moving on. As you may have guessed by listening to a few episodes of the Killer Spirits podcast, we look up some pretty questionable information online. Without context, some of our interests could appear pretty suspicious. That's why we use Surfshark, the VPN service we trust. With Surfshark, you can protect your online identity and keep you and your family's online activity private at all times. Surfshark can offer the assurance you need that you are browsing privately with encryption so no one can track or steal your data, including hackers, companies, or bots. Their strict no-logs policy ensures that even Surfshark can't track you. They don't keep any record of your online activity. You can change your IP address to hide your location to avoid tracking. With the S-Alert feature... Surfshark gives real-time alerts when your emails and passwords are at risk of being hacked. And with their clean web feature, you can surf the web with no annoying ads, trackers, malware, or phishing attempts. One of the most unique things about Surfshark is that you can protect your family on an unlimited amount of devices for a super low price, and they have 24-7 customer support. Follow the link in the description to support the show and sign up for Surfshark today at prices starting as low as $2.49 a month. That is a seriously incredible deal for a little extra safety and security for you and your family. Agreed. Go check them out in the link in the description. Today, we are talking about Thomas Neal Cream. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention his last name is the reason for the cream. (laughs) That's why we've added cream to our cocktail today. Um, Actually, I want to tell you before I start, two books that Mm -hmm. I really liked. One by Dean Job. It's called The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, The Hunt for a Victorian-Era Serial Killer. And the other is called I Am Jack the dot, dot, dot by Wallace Edwards, and it's a biography of one of Scotland's most notorious killers, Mm. Thomas Neal Cream. So, yeah, he was technically Scottish. Um, That was a terrible Scottish accent. So, sorry to my (laughs) all my Scottish (laughs) listeners. (laughs) I tried. When I lived in England, I tried my English accent, too, and I was told that I sounded too posh. So, okay. Yeah. It could still be believable. But I think Americans do sound posh in some words anyway, because why do we say pasta which would be a very posh thing to say over there. And they say pasta. Pasta is like being poshy and stupid. Pasta is like... Pasta sounds so weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it weird when... It sounds so wrong. It does. It's just interesting the, the different ways we say things. Like if a kid said that, I'd be like, don't say it like that. Don't say pasta. It's <laughs> pasta. It's pasta. Oh, okay. 
So, yes, Thomas Neal Cream was his parents' firstborn, and he was the eldest in a large family of eight brothers and sisters. So there was a lot of kids, yeah. Cream was born on May 27th, 1850 in Glasgow, Scotland. So the family remained in the Scottish city for the first four years of his life. Um, His parents, William Cream and Mary Cream, who was Mary Elder, chose to emigrate to Canada. And their destination was an Algonquin town just outside of Quebec City called Lancet-au-Foulon, which I might have said completely wrong, but the locals called it Wolf's Cove. Oh, okay. Which is a very cool name. Say it again in French. Lancet-au-Foulon. Sounds good. It sounds really good, but I might have butchered it. (laughs) (laughs) I did take four years of French at some point. In high school slash college, but I don't really know if it translated. I mean, it sounded good to me. Because when I actually went to France and I asked for more coffee, like plus café, she looked at me like I was nuts and had no idea what I was saying. So oh. I am probably was said it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So in September of 1872, when Thomas was 22, he left home and chose to attend McGill University in Montreal in order to study medicine. Not really much about his younger life. It seemed like a pretty normal life. I think he really loved his mom. Um, at one point, she did pass away, and I think that affected him quite a bit. Um, he was always, like, a smart, sharp kid. I mean, obviously, he's in medical school. Right, so it didn't. It wasn't really a surprise, you know. Mm-hmm. In the spring of 1876, Thomas Cream was a tall, dark, and handsome 25-year-old man. He was intelligent, kind of mysterious. He had piercing dark eyes, wore fashionable attire, and he definitely attracted the interest of the ladies. It's the hat. It's the hat. It's the whole swagger. (laughs) So he took an interest in a woman named Flora Eliza Brooks. She was 23. She was attractive with a fair complexion and dark hair, and he courted her for a while, pretty much convinced her that they would definitely get married. And because she trusted that that would happen, they were intimate. Oh, okay. Not the most popular thing to occur during that time period. No. So that April, two weeks after his graduation from McGill University, he had been living in uh, like an apartment. And he told his landlady, Jane Porter, that he was moving. But could he please keep his belongings at this apartment until he could get them moved? I mean... It's not like you could just call, like, starving students movers back then. It's not like you could just load (laughs) up a truck. Right. So she was like, sure thing. That's fine. So two days later, on April 18th, a fire broke out in this room. And by the time the fire brigade made their way to the building, most of the furniture had been destroyed. Just totally damaged everything. And there was this charred skeleton on the bed. What? Yeah. So the firemen were like, oh, the guy died. (laughs) Whoever lived here died. Oh, okay. Yeah. But actually, Thomas had placed the skeleton there. It was one of his medical props. Oh, okay. Okay. So no one was certain how the fire began, though. So the landlady was like, no, no, no. That's just a... I actually know that that's just a skeleton. Okay. But no one could figure out how the fire began. But, you know, Thomas was like, I must file a very detailed list of the burned possessions for insurance. Right. And that claim will be $978.40, which is a lot of money back then. I mean, I would do a claim if I my place burned down. Well, yeah, sure. But the insurance company refused to pay. What? And I'm pretty sure they thought that he was complicit in this fire, which he probably was. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, 
What if he wasn't? But what if he wasn't? <laughs> he pays for insurance. Yeah. So the dispute went to arbitration, and Thomas finally did get $350. Okay. So it's kind of the start of a very slippery slope for mm. Thomas. Maybe he over-asked. Maybe I, he was a little too detailed. I think he overdoes a lot of things, yeah. as we'll see. So that summer, Flora fell pregnant, because remember, oh. they were intimate. Yeah. Which certainly threw a wrench in his plans, because I am actually sh- certain that he never intended to marry her. This is just my personal belief. I don't believe he ever was. Oh, it was just a lie. Yeah. So I, his solution was to perform an abortion on her. Great. Which he is not truly a doctor yet at this point. Okay, so just... Let's remember this. No, he's just a kid that keeps a skeleton in his room. He, yeah, I mean, he's it, he graduated from the university, but he does not have a license, right? At this at this juncture, so he's like done with his book stuff. He hasn't done the practical stuff, right? So she agreed after a lot of browbeating from him. I mean, she was unmarried. This was very very scandalous. I'm sure she did not want her parents to find out, mm-hmm. and I have a feeling that she didn't necessarily want this abortion. But Thomas wasn't like, oh, you know what? Let's get married now. I mean. I feel like that's what most people probably would have done. Like, let's just hurry and get married now, and then it wouldn't be an issue. But that's not what happened. Mm. So he's like, let's remove this problem. He performed the abortion, but he sucked at it, and he botched it. And he had never performed an abortion before. So his knowledge of carrying out the procedure was pretty minimal at this point. Also, under Canadian law, it was a criminal offense to perform an abortion or to administer or provide any noxious substance with the intention of causing a miscarriage. So okay. this was against the law, right. not, not just against society's law. So the next day, on September 9th, Flora woke up at her parents' house very ill. She had an infection and a high fever. Flora's family was obviously concerned, so they called the doctor, mm-hmm. and he came to examine her, and he discovered that she had undergone an abortion. He probably discovered this pretty quickly. So he, sh- he, um, he actually revealed this to the family. Mm-hmm. I mean, HIPAA laws were not a thing, apparently, well, <laughs> back then. Uh, no, they weren't. Depends on her age, right? Well, she's 23. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, that's, yeah, yeah. that's not. Um, but she's still over with her parents, obviously, because mm-hmm. she hadn't been married. But no, HIPAA did not exist. He told the family, and they were completely astonished. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. Flora's father, who was the owner of a prosperous hotel in Waterloo, Canada. So she came from a prosperous family, mm-hmm. which I'm certain is why he was sniffing around all mm-hmm. of this. He was livid. I bet. So that's he baby. actually gathered a mob... And went out to find hell yeah, Thomas Cream. Man, <laughs> if anything ever happens to me, my dad better get a mob together. We're ga- oh, I'll gather a mob. Yeah, Don't you worry. You better get a mob. The mob is happening. <laughs> I will get things lit on fire. I'm. It's happening. So when they reached Cream's residency, they found him exiting the building with his bags packed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Flora's father basically pulled a gun on him and was like, dude, you're coming back to marry my daughter right now. Oh, shit. And Cream was like, totally. That's exactly where I was going right now. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Cream. So after making Thomas sign a very lengthy agreement in which he would receive zero money from the marriage, like it went through this whole thing where basically they have kids. Yeah, no, it definitely was. It was like multiple pages long. The wedding took place the next day, and Flora was so unwell that she had to sit through her entire wedding. Oh, no. Yeah, he did that to her, by the way. So the next. How sick for her. I know it is sick. It kind of makes me... That she just has to sit there and get married to to this fucking creep. I know, but I don't think she thought he was a fucking creep even then. 
I really don't. So the next morning, after their wedding, mm-hmm. she woke up to a note on the bed in which Thomas told her he was going to go to England to finish his studies, but he would be sure to stay in touch. Sure. Nice, huh? Whatever, dude. Whatever's right. So during his time in England, he ran into no less than two people who knew of his marriage to Flora. Oh, shit. <laughs> one. He's got people. Yeah. One being the archdeacon who actually performed the ceremony at their wedding. What? Yeah. So he heard whilst in London that Thomas was busy trying to date a wealthy socialite. Mm-hmm. So she learned, the wealthy socialite learned that he was married and at that ended of that. Right. <clears throat> He then set his sights on his landlady's daughter, but the landlady also had connections in Canada, and she got his number pretty quick, so that ended. Yeah. She's like, yeah, no, I actually know that you left a woman. Wow. What a small world. Yeah. So I'm sure poor Thomas was feeling really annoyed (laughs) at this point. He's like, man, I tried to escape. It's not working. So in April 1877, while in England, he took the preliminary exam for the Royal College of Surgeons of England, which was the largest and most influential medical body in Britain. He failed. Oh. Yes. Okay. It's, it's actually a very hard test. Yeah, I imagine. He failed it. Oh, good. I'm glad it's a hard test. Yeah. It no, should be it really should be hard. It should be very hard. On August 12th, 1877, Flora died after a lingering illness. Oh, no. Which was odd because she had fully recovered from the botched abortion, allegedly. Okay. So at one point before her death, she admitted to the doctor that she had been taking pills sent to her from her husband, Thomas Cream. No. He ordered her to stop taking them, the doctor did, which she did, and she started to feel better, but the damage was done. Fuck. Yes. So... When Thomas received word of her death, his response, not, oh, my poor wife, I loved her so much. It was to demand $1,000 from her estate. Dude, you already signed the paperwork. Yeah, like, do you not remember what you signed? Well, Flora's father basically told him to suck it, but his demands kept coming, and he eventually did receive $200. I don't know why. Just to get lost. There was lawyers involved is a thing. Settle. Which I'm sure galled the hell out of her father. I would, I can't even imagine that poor man. Where's your mom, dad? Yeah. And there's actually a picture of her gravestone, which is just, you know how I feel about gravestones. Mm-hmm. And it's just so beautiful and so sad, yeah. you know, that he murdered her. I know that he sent her shit and murdered her. From another country. From which another is country. It's insane. I mean, it's the, the fact that he was so trustworthy to so many people is very frustrating as we go through the story. You'll just be like, why? <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good lesson to us all. Just because someone is a quote-unquote doctor does not mean they have your best interest at heart all the time. So just follow your gut, people. Agreed. So, <clears throat> yes. And why the discovery of him sending her pills was never fully investigated, I'll never know. It was like it was kind of investigated, and he was like, oh, nothing happened there. But it was not fully investigated. And, I mean, yes, this was 18... So they don't even know... 77. They don't even know what the pills were? No. I mean, it was hard to test a lot of stuff, and I don't even know if they were tested and what happened to them. She already ingested them, so it's not like they had anything to even test. It was just her words saying that this happened. So, yeah. Anyway... That's frustrating. Yeah, that's annoying. So Thomas decided that Edinburgh, Scotland was the place to be. I mean, he failed his test. So 
We actually talked about this a bit in our Burke and Hare episodes, so go listen to it. Oh, yeah. But Edinburgh had been the center of learning for centuries. There's The medical school there was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Thomas was almost 28 years old, had obviously failed at his first attempt at re- receiving a license, and oh. he was ready to try again. And he also may have crossed paths with Arthur Conan Doyle, who was completing his second year of studies at the medical school. Mm-hmm. And he would also have come in contact with Conan Doyle's favorite instructor, which was Dr. Joseph Bell. And much of what Conan Doyle learned from Dr. Bell ended up in his Sherlock Holmes books, which I thought was kind of an interesting crossover. Yeah, he talks about that in the book a lot. Um, Not the I Am Jack, the the other one. Mm -hmm. Um, And he goes into really deep detail. If you want to read something that is really quick, Read I Am Jack the. <laughs> if you want to really dive into the history and, I mean, so much detail on the different poisons, it's such a good book. I mean, it's over 300 pages. Mm-hmm. I highly suggest it, the one I talked about in the beginning. Let me look at it so I can give you the title again. We'll put it in the description, too. Yeah, we'll put it in the description. It's The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream by Dean Job. It is so well-researched and so good. That's cool. Um, so I highly recommend it, but... Um, Yes, yeah, so he talks a lot about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle mm-hmm. in this book as well, and Sherlock Holmes and how it got, he got a lot of his inspiration from this specific doctor that was an instructor That's at this school. school. Yes. So the Edinburgh exams began on April 2nd, and one in three candidates failed to make it through the first round. Thomas made it through the first round. Okay. A quarter of the candidates who advanced to the second round were rejected. So, I mean, it's hard, core. Mm-hmm. Thomas was one of 159 students who were granted a license. God help the world. Uh-oh. Which is interesting because talking about Dr. Joseph Bell, he was said to have been able to read people so well. I mean, like his deduction skills, and I mean, that's why he his likeness ended up in Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. And he would have spent quite a bit of time with Thomas Cream, but... Not even he could see what was coming. Was it just because he's such a sociopath? Possibly. Like he's just so good at Yeah, I mean, and, and from what I read, he wasn't liked, but he wasn't really disliked from his fellow students. He just was kind of crazy. Hmm. He was just kind of weird. He was just... They just thought, like, oh, he's eccentric. Possibly. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think he was super disliked. There's a really cool picture I'll put up, too, of the, the graduating class... Um, and he's just kind of like sitting there with his arm draped over another student. And mm. they all look like super serious. But he actually looks creepily happy. <laughs> mm. I don't know. <laughs> After you know what you know about him, you're like, mm, okay. So now he was a licensed doctor and free from any wives. Mm-hmm. So he made his way back to Canada and settled in London, Ontario. Not free from his reputation, though. Not free from, but his reputation at this point wasn't that bad. Oh, it's just that he's a doctor now. Probably. He's a doctor now. You know, he's not exactly where he was with his wife, with Flora. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, he set up his own medical practice, and he became the doctor women went to when they found themselves in the family way. Fuck. So abortions could be of big all business things, for him. Of all things he could have done? Yeah. What the fuck? You're going to make a lot of money because... And this, and also, I mean, I'm not trying to be political here. I personally don't feel this is a political issue. Whatever. 
But guess what? You can outlaw abortion all you want. It's still going to fucking happen. And women are going to die. And that is the part that bothers me. So he was not a good one. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> not a good one. So was it still illegal then? Yes. So then he was not a an above the law practicing doctor. He was above the law. This was a very this is undertone. Okay. Very undertone. So gotcha. he actually had ads in the newspaper that talked about his Edinburgh credentials, his specialization in midwifery, mm-hmm. and his training at St. Thomas. So all of that was above board. Okay. He started kind of assimilating to city he joined a church he taught sunday school he joined the local chapter of the young men's christian association association nice in 1879 he met Catherine hutchinson gardner sometimes called kate sometimes called kitty she was beautiful with a vivacious personality on may 1st 1879 a woman was found in the privy, which is basically an outhouse, behind Bennett's fancy store, slumped against the wall, dead. It was Kitty. Oh, shit. She was in her mid-twenties and wearing a faded purple dress, scuffed shoes, a cheap ring with imitation garnet stone on a finger of her right hand, and a straw, a black straw hat trimmed with netting and sprouting a gray ostrich feather lay at her feet. Just to get an idea of how she dressed. Her nose and her cheeks were burned and completely raw. The constable was alerted, and then the coroner came. Burned? Yes, like like a chemical burn, okay. as we shall see. So before the body was removed to the London General Hospital for an autopsy, another doctor just randomly showed up, and his office was on an upper floor at 204 Dundas Street above Hiscox's livery station. And next door to Bennett's store. So basically, he's like right there, mm-hmm. right around the corner from yeah. the alley. A lane and an outdoor stairway connected his building to the privy in the backyard. So they were literally connected. Mm-hmm. He identified the woman as a maid at a nearby Tecumseh House Hotel. And he knew her name, too. Oh, that's Kitty Gardner. She had consulted him several times, he said. A reporter at the scene jotted down the name of this helpful bystander doctor, Dr. Cream. Mm-hmm. Helpful so, bystander, all right. Yep. So the autopsy concluded that Kitty was, dun-dun-dun, pregnant. Right. Dr. Cream's story was that she came to him for an abortion, but he denied her. Of course. Because, A, he wouldn't do that, and, B, she was much too far along okay. in her pregnancy. But she just kept hounding him. So the general opinion was that she had killed herself because she was so despondent over her pregnancy. Using chloroform, this is how she killed herself. Her. How? Yes. How? That she put a rag over her face right. and killed herself with chloroform because she was so despondent over being pregnant. Okay. Yeah. So some things I read really went into detail that they had a relationship. Mm-hmm. Other Books I read said that it's uncertain if they had a relationship. Some people feel he was the father of this baby, but it was never proven. It's unknown. Right. So the doctor at the inquest advised that there was no way that she could have held that cloth on her own face long enough to kill herself, especially, yeah, given the amount of burning. So basically, think of yourself holding a cloth on your face. It's you're getting a, a horrific chemical burn yeah but 
you're going to keep holding it there? And also you'd pass out. Yes. And remove the, the cloth would fall from your face. Most likely, yes. That's so, like, um, yeah, I mean, that'd be like choking yourself with your own hands. I, You'd eventually just pass out I and know. then your hands would fall away. There's, exactly. It's not like a You thing. can hold your breath, but you're not going to die. No, you just, just pass out and then thing. wake up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then you'd be like, oh, shoot. That's why you don't have to worry about kids when they hold their breath. <laughs> yeah. You say like, just hold, hold as long as you want. Go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah, so they, the doctor at the inquest was like, yeah, this killing herself thing is not really flying for me. And then there was another man that was identified as the father of her baby. Okay. But Cream did remain the prime suspect in newspapers and in the minds of locals. So he was not Good. off the hook, Good. even though nothing really went further with this case. Hmm. Her murder was never solved. That's sad. So on July 5th, Cream was like, oh, I think I'll just leave town now. <laughs> it's and been long enough. I'll just go. I'll just leave, which he likes to do. And he headed to Chicago where he again set up a medical practice. And it was around this time that he started his own addiction issues, and he started taking cocaine and morphine regularly. I mean, if it's available. It was very available Readily to available. Readily. While performing an abortion on a young sex worker named Mary Ann Faulkner, she died from loss of blood on August 1880, in August 1880. The police came for him pretty quickly, but he had the money to hire a good lawyer mm-hmm. who very quickly and efficiently moved the spotlight to the midwife that Cream had hired, blaming her for everything. Cool. So his story is, the midwife performed this abortion. I just showed up after this untrained midwife had performed the abortion. I tried to save her, couldn't do it. This literally has nothing to do with me. I didn't perform anything. So he was actually found not guilty, and the midwife was charged with murder. Even though that is not what happened. Of course not. She was probably bamboozled into even helping him. Mm -hmm. And from what I read, she was also African-American, which I'm sure tilted the scales very unfairly in her corner. Yeah. So there's that. So a few months later in December 1880, he was in court again for the death of another patient. His patient was Miss Ellen Stack. She had been prescribed anti-pregnancy pills by him, and she naturally trusted him. He is a doctor. She is a sex worker. Mm -hmm. He's like, take these anti-pregnancy pills. I mean, yes, take them. I mean, women take them all the time now, don't we? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he had actually concocted the remedy himself, and one of the ingredients was strychnine. And he would have been... Very knowledgeable about this. Mm-hmm. Okay. This strychnine is a highly toxic alkaloid. It's a colorless crystalline and usually used as a pesticide against small vertebrates such as birds and rodents. So again, he was very aware of this. Mm. He would have So are the anti pregnancy pills like what we would consider birth control or what we would consider plan B? They didn't have those back then. I know, but is it like after you're pregnant to end a pregnancy or is it to avoid getting pregnant? I believe that he it was he was telling her it was to avoid getting okay. pregnant. Gotcha. I could be wrong, but that's how I read it. Um, so he would have been aware that consumption, even inhalation of this alkaloid would have led to muscular convulsion and eventually death caused by asphyxia. Yeah, I'm sure he used protective equipment when he was making the 
pills. Oh, I'm sure he did. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm sure he knew the dangers of it. That yep. would be like basic chemistry in, if you're a doctor. Yeah, which he would know. Mm-hmm. He got away with murder again when his lawyer argued that it was the pharmacist who effed up on this, not Dr. Thomas Neal Cream. <sighs> okay. So there is no evidence linking him to the strychnine, so he was again released. And, of course, the victim is a sex worker. Which most of them will are. Are they going to really look into it that closely? Probably not, unfortunately. Exactly. He created his own medicinal drugs to cure various diseases and ailments. And by the spring of the following year, he had created many elixirs, specifically one that helped with epilepsy. And surprisingly, though, people swore by it Hmm. and started flocking to him to get this epilepsy pill. Weird. I don't know what the hell was in it, mm-hmm. but people seemed to like it and word spread about it. So Daniel Stott was a railway agent and also an epileptic. So word on the grapevine came to him about Cream's new wonder drug. So he sent his wife to get this drug for him. His work commitments actually conflicted with Cream's opening hours. So he continued to send his wife, Julia, to get this medication for mm-hmm. him. So Julia, God bless her, like many women before her, found Dr. Cream to be charming, mysterious, darkly handsome. So, of course, there was a spark between them instantly, and pretty soon they were lovers, as was Cream's M.O., I feel. Uh He, I don't really go much into it. That's why I think you should read the book. But he basically was kind of obsessed with pornography back then. I don't even know. And sex and was very, um, he was with sex workers all the time. He kind of sounds like an egomaniac. He was an egomaniac. He's a disgusting human. And also a sociopath. Sociopath. And I feel that he did not see sex workers as actual humans. Uh, It seems like he doesn't see a lot of people as actual humans. Yes. So Julia, of course, is not a sex worker. Mm -hmm. She's a married woman. Um. So the outcome of this will be a little different, but, and also she doesn't get pregnant, (laughs) which I think is, which is a big trigger for him, apparently. That's the ego part. That's the ego part. Yeah. So they started this little affair, but her husband, Daniel, started getting suspicious Mm -hmm. because he's like, I have enough medication. You don't need to go back today. Do you need to go every day? (laughs) Like, What's happening, He's Julia? only giving you one pill at a time now? <laughs> I don't, yeah, like, why are you, I have to, this makes no sense. Yeah. So he confronted her with his belief that she was having an affair, and she denied it. But she did tell Cream, like, he's on to us, man. So, of course, Cream, when he made Daniel's next batch of epilepsy medication. Oh, just get rid of your problem. He added a little extra ingredient. Yeah. Strychnine. What a fucker. Daniel Stott was found dead on June 14th, 1881. That's terrible. Then Cream, being the megalomaniac that he is, he sat down immediately after his body was found and wrote a letter to the coroner before an arrest had even been made and pointed out, he pointed an accusatory finger at the pharmacist for the addition of strychnine in his formula. Like, oh, I know what happened. The pharmacist put strychnine in his medication. I'm like, bitch, we didn't even ask you. Yeah, and the coroner read the letter as soon as he received it. He hadn't even done an autopsy yet. So he's like, hmm, how would you know it was strychnine? How does this doctor know that there's strychnine in the corpse? 
So suspicion was aroused. Of course. (laughs) I love that it was aroused. (laughs) So anyway, he took the letter to the police and then did the soft autopsy. And sure enough, large doses of strychnine were found in his stomach, Daniel Stott's stomach. Mm -hmm. It was undoubtedly the cause of death. So you jumped the gun on that one, Thomas. Yeah, idiot. You know, he really liked writing letters, accusatory letters to about other people. But this one, it's like, maybe you should have waited till the investigation started and things started. Maybe you should have waited until they asked you. Yeah, you probably should have done that. Yeah. Or waited till Strychnine was like in the papers or something. Mm -hmm. Because now they're like, how do you even know this? So they, the police were like, yep. Our sights are set on this guy. But, of course, Thomas was like, I'm going to go to Canada now. So he left for Canada. Right. But they found him, and they put him on trial for murder. Good. Julia actually cracked under pressure and admitted the affair, and she also told police that Cream told her to leave everything to him. He had a plan. Yeah. His plan, plan was to murder Daniel, which he did. That's fucked up. So it didn't go well for him. He was sentenced to life in Joliet State Penitentiary. Oh, good. He was in Joliet. So he was he was inmate number 4374. Sheriff Albert Ames delivered cream to the prison on the first day of November 1881. Once inside, cream was led to the receiving department where he was ordered to strip, of course. A clerk noted the date and carefully recorded his identifying features. He was 182 pounds with a solid build and quote-unquote massive jaws and chin. (laughs) I don't know if you get that from the pictures. I don't really feel like it looked massive, but okay. He did have a massive ego, though. Maybe Yeah, he had a massive top hat. His legitimate occupation was recorded as a physician. His mental culture was considered good. His habits of life, such as chewing tobacco, were moderate. He described himself as a widower, but no one asked what happened to his wife. Interestingly enough. Usually people, <laughs> I mean, you're already in prison for murder. I guess. They probably just figure. And he, it was life, so. Yeah. You know, they're like, whatever, dude. We don't care if you kill um, your wife. Interestingly, he did have a deep scar on the left side of his abdomen, and he said he had undergone surgery. I could not find anything telling the us what this scourgery scourgery was. Well, that is your right side, right? I don't. Do I look like Dr. Tracy oh to you? I have no clue. I think appendix and gallbladder is your right side. Well, I would like to know what this is. I feel like I need to do more research on that because mm-hmm. I want to know. He did not explain the reason for the operation. Who knows what it was? He was ordered to bathe in a tub in an open room, then issued a coat, a vest, a peaked cap, and a pair of pants, all emblazoned with black and white horizontal bands. Yeah. He was an inmate. So the zebra stripes would make him easy to spot if he tried to escape. Yes. But it was also, I think, I'm not sure if we talked about this in our episode, but it was also kind of a way to demean them and make them feel less human. Mm-hmm. But go listen to our Juliet episode. I don't talk about cream specifically, but I do talk a lot about what went on during the time he spent there. And that was the episode where I ran across his name. Oh. And I was like, what's this? Oh. I like some cream. Oh, I don't like this cream. Yeah, no. <laughs> So, yeah. Uh, it's a good episode, so go listen to it. Uh, prisoners spent 10-hour days quarrying rock or toiling in silence in prison shops. It was believed that hard work and discipline would cure them of their criminal ways, of course. 
When inmates disobeyed orders or prison rules, wardens would choose between punishing or reforming, and usually they punished. So by the time Cream was locked up in Joliet, that whole whipping, gagging, and dousing with cold water crap was pretty much done. Now they use solitary confinement. Right. Cream's cell was a closet-sized stone coffin, seven feet high, seven feet deep, and just four and a half feet wide. And he most likely shared that with someone else. Mm -hmm. Tiny, tiny. He would be issued two buckets, one for washing and one for his toilet. And he would definitely grow accustomed to the smell of urine and feces. Because, I mean, they didn't have plumbing in this one. There was no window, just a small hole leading to the roof for ventilation. A strip of wood attached to the iron-barred cell door bore his name and inmate number. How claustrophobic. It sounds terrible. Yeah. Like, I'm claustrophobic. I don't know how I would deal with that. I couldn't. I don't think I could. And we have pictures of Joliet Prison on our Instagram, and it is not. I would freak out every day. It's terrible. In April of 1885, he spent a week in solitary for ruining some of his stonework. Four months later, he was sent back for eight days for what prison records describe as not doing reasonable work. He's being lazy. He's being lazy. He would do two more stints in solitary for breaches of discipline. And, of course, time in what they called the hole Mm -hmm. was horrific. I mean, it was, like, soul-destroying. And a lot of men kind of went cuckoo, Mm -hmm. as we talked about in Eastern State Penitentiary. Right. You know, it's not a good thing. So the cells of this prison within a prison were empty, a plank on the cold stone floor served as a bed. So you didn't even get a bed. You just got a plank. A small skylight admitted some light, but a heavy wooden door shut out the world. Inmates subsisted on daily ra- a daily ration of half a slice of bread and a small cup of water. What? Yep. Cream would have been handcuffed to the cell's barred inner door each day, forcing him to stand for the 10 hours he should have been at work. So you can't lay on your plank. Now you got to stand. Those who resisted were beaten with clubs. Those who screamed for release were gagged with a leather strap. He requested a pardon and was denied in 1885. Now remember, this is a life sentence. He should be here for a life. Mm -hmm. But on June 12th, 1890, a new governor was in office. He was granted a fucking pardon. By the governor. Good job, governor, because by doing so, you've now sentenced multiple more people to death. Nice. Nice. So his first stop after his release was to the Pinkerton's National Detective Agency to track down Julia Stott. So he had actually tried to find her while he was in prison because he felt he was going to prove that she lied and they were not having an affair and he had nothing to do with Daniel's murder but, okay, but you did, and she did. I know. And it's over now. No. You're out of prison. Yeah. What the fuck? Exactly. So they're... Leave it alone. They had not been um, successful at finding her when he had tried the first time, but he goes back and wants to try a second time, and you wonder why. Why did you want to find her? Anyway. Probably because he wants to kill her. That's what I think. 
They were not successful again, thankfully. I have Good. a feeling she probably changed her name and got the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, no kidding. So he stayed with his brother for a short time, and then he made his way back to London. Poor London. <laughs> I feel so bad for them. Here he comes again. Mm-hmm. So he also now had $16,000 that he received as an inheritance when his father died. Okay. Yeah, so he's flush with money. Sure. On October 13th, after returning to London... He visited Ellen Donworth, also known as Nellie, which I think Nellie will be the cutest name till the end of time. She was a 19-year-old sex worker. They went for a drink at Wellington Pub. She ended up exiting this pub alone, staggering and weaving down the street. Her friend found her on the street and assisted her back to her place where she lived, and he thought that perhaps she was just drunk. You know, she drank a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. But then she began to convulse, and she told her landlady that she had accepted a drink from a Dr. Thomas Neal, and it had white stuff in it. Police and medics were called, but she died in the carriage on the way to the hospital. Mm. So just an FYI, he has dropped the name Cream at this point, and he is now Dr. Thomas Neal. Okay. Which, Neal is his middle name. On October 20th, 27-year-old sex worker by the name of Matilda Clover. Is that not the cutest name? Yeah. Met a man named Fred at 7.30. So Matilda had a two-year-old son and had been forced to work the streets to pay her rent. She lived with her landlords, the Vowels, and a servant girl named Rose. So as she left, Rose caught a glimpse of this Fred guy, which will be meaningful later. So two other sex workers, Elizabeth Masters and Elizabeth May, also saw the man that Matilda was with. So Matilda goes out. She comes back. She goes to bed. At 3 a.m., everyone in the house was awakened by the horrific screams coming from her room. The Vowles and Rose ran into her room to discover she was basically writhing in agony on her bed. She screamed that Fred had given her pills. Of course, Fred was nowhere to be seen. He wasn't Mm -hmm. there. He lit out already. Over time, like over the next few hours, her body contorted. She grabbed onto the bedpost. She screamed on and on and on. She gagged. She vomited. Doctors were called in to save her, but they could do nothing. Because they don't know what's wrong, you know. By 7 a.m., she was pronounced dead. One London newspaper would later dismiss her as, quote, a miserable street outcast whose life was of no particular value to anybody. So, hello, Victorian England. Sometimes, hello, modern-day world. Yeah, what the fuck? That's how you feel about sex workers. She was a mother. She had a son. She was a person. She was important to people. So anyway, that was disgusting when I read that. Well, and it seems like the um, perception and the he's kind of figured out what the perception is going to be and he knows mm-hmm. that it's going to help him. Oh, absolutely. Because you're you're picking up on what people considered to be back then the most vile thing that you could be mm-hmm. and the most vile thing you could do. Um, and he's exploiting that. Of course. And it was always the women, you know, Throughout history, they would be forced to, like, strip down and get tested for STDs. No one ever tested the men. No one ever, you know, made it their problem, ever. Mm -hmm. 
And so that is this pervasive issue here. So Dr. Graham, who had been treating Matilda for alcoholism, because she she was an alcoholic as well, he actually drafted a death certificate attributing her death to heart failure. Hmm. And he felt that it was, she was detoxing off of alcohol, and that's what did this. Even though there was multiple witnesses who said that she had been drinking. So she was not detoxing. Right. So because he indicated no foul play, it was unnecessarily unnecessary to notify the local coroner or the police. Right. So there would be no inquest. That's annoying. Oh, well. Uh, alcoholic sex worker, she died. Like, I just feel Too like bad. without conspiracy, he's very easily getting away with this stuff. Oh, he yeah. doesn't have to conspire with anybody because society has already conspired against the people that he is hurting. Exactly. Which brings us to another person who got away with a murder, Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Now, Jack the Ripper was a few years earlier than this, mm-hmm. 1888. But... That was still pervasive in that area, and he also targeted sex workers. Mm -hmm. So, in the spring of 1892, Cream met a woman named Lou Harvey, or Louise Harris, on the streets of Piccadilly. She was also a sex worker. They agreed to meet later and go to a music hall in Lambeth, and Lambeth is a district in South London, so it's kind of near Parliament, I think. He praised her beauty. But told her that she was too pale. But guess what I have? I have some pills that will help your paleness. Mm -hmm. So as they crossed Waterloo Bridge, he provided her with two pills and told her to take them. This will make you more beautiful. And I'm a doctor. (laughs) Right. And so she took them, allegedly, and he said, let me see your mouth. Let me see your hands. Like he wanted to make sure she actually took these pills. She showed him her mouth. She showed him her hands. They were all empty. Unbeknownst to him, she did feel pretty weird about this whole thing, and she had actually dropped the pills over the bridge when he didn't see. She did not take them. Good girl. Smart girl. So he just went along his merry way. It's like taking a shot from somebody and throwing it over your shoulder when they're not looking. Which I've totally done. (laughs) Yeah. Especially if it's absinthe. That shit is disgusting. Yeah, no. (laughs) On April 11th, 1892, Cream met two sex workers, um, 21-year-old Alice Marsh and 18-year-old Emma Shrivel. They returned to their residence, and from what I read, after a night of passion, mm-hmm. who knows, he convinced them both to take some pills. And I believe he told them, and this was, I think, his shtick, unwanted pregnancy, these will protect, protect you from venereal disease. These were all things that were a fear of sex workers back right. then. It was a big concern. They agreed. He's a doctor. They took the pills. After he left, they both died in agony. Suddenly, the Metropolitan Police and the Scotland Yard were aware that there was another serial killer roaming the streets of London. I mean, they'd been searching for Jack the Ripper for multiple years, even though he had stopped killing in 1888. He uh, obviously never found. So this one, they nicknamed the Lambeth Mystery Poisoner. Hmm. Doesn't have that great of a ring to it. No, not a great ring. It's kind of (laughs) terrible, but maybe that's good. Could have been like Jack the Poisoner or something. Jack the Poisoner. So around this time, Cream, now known as Thomas Neal, had become friendly with a former New York detective by the name of John Haynes. I guess they were just buddies. I don't know. What? He thought himself 
like a man about town. Okay. You know, with his little top hat and his yeah. fur fucking jacket <laughs> that I'm going to post. Fucking fur jacket. <laughs> his fucking fur jacket. I wish he was alive now so he could hear us making fun of him. I, uh, yeah. If beyond the grave, you ass yeah. piece of shit. <laughs> I hate you. We hope you know. One night over drinks, Cream got loose lipped, probably drank too much, and he started spouting off his theory about these poisoning murders that were happening. Oh, he's got theories. Got theories. Okay. Let me tell you my theories. I'm going to tell you who's probably doing these. I'm going to tell you who's guilty. But he was throwing in a lot of info that was unknown mm-hmm. at the time, specifically the murders of Matilda Clover. That was never actually a murder. A murder. And someone named Lou Harvey. Who's that? Hmm. Who obviously did not die, but Cream did not know this. He thought right. she died. Yeah. So John Haynes paid a visit to his friend, Inspector Patrick McIntyre, at Scotland Yard. Because he was like, hmm. And then also I was reading as they were like walking around the city, it was like Cream was pointing out places. Oh, that's where so-and-so had a drink and died. That's where. And it's like. Wow, that's a lot of inside information. Yeah, you're pretty obsessed with this, aren't you? That's, yes, and he talked about these murders a lot. A lot mm-hmm. of people said that he sounded very obsessed. So after he goes to talk to his friend, the inspector, they could find no mention anywhere of someone named Lou Harvey that had died. The police would ultimately spend weeks trying to locate any death records or mentions of Lou Harvey in newspapers. <clears throat> police decided to start shadowing this mysterious Dr. Thomas Neal. Mm-hmm. And they soon discovered his real name was Dr. Thomas Cream. Right. Police interviewed the servant girl, Rose, who had seen the man that Matilda had left with on the night she died, Matilda Clover. Fred. And, yes, and they also tracked down Elizabeth Masters and Elizabeth May, who basically described Cream to a T. I mean, he was kind of an obvious-looking dude. Cream also started a really stupid side thing that he started doing where he was trying to frame rich people of the murders. So he would write them letters, basically blackmailing them, saying, I have evidence that you killed so-and-so, and and I'm going to give it to the police if you don't send me money. So he started writing all all these letters. Okay. Yeah. And this was ultimately his downfall. I mean, he's an idiot. Yeah, you're spreading yourself way too thin. Yeah. Because once the police got a sample of his writing, they were able to compare it to all these blackmail letters. Perfect. And they're like, yeah, it's the same guy. Inspector John Bennett Tunbridge actually traveled from England and went to Canada and the U.S. to gather as much intel as possible on cream. Because they're like, this guy, we need more information. Yeah. And he found a lot, which is everything we talked about in the beginning. He'd been in prison. He... He was probably wanted for other murders that he wasn't even convicted of. Right. Cream was arrested in England on June 3rd. Good. Thankfully. Cream's trial opened on the afternoon of October 17th, 1892 in London's Central Criminal Court at the Old Bailey. His friend, John Haynes, came forward to recall, I say friend in air quotes, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) came forward to recall his conversation with Cream. Elizabeth May and Elizabeth Masters also came forward to identify him as the man they saw on the street with Matilda Clover. Mm-hmm. The arrest of Dr. Thomas Cream was big news in the papers, and none other than Lou Harvey saw an article, and she realized that she narrowly escaped her own death. Smart. After not taking those pills. Yeah. So she had changed her name and kind of started a new life because okay. she wanted to get out of sex work, which right. is not an easy thing to do. 
that was why she couldn't, she wasn't found mm-hmm. easily. But she contacted the police and said she would travel to London and testify. Okay. I know. God, she's. That's brave. She's very brave. So she walked into the courtroom and Kareem thought he saw a go- He thought she was dead. Yeah. And here she comes in like, do, 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 looking as healthy as ever. Uh-oh. And he was like, oh, shit. Yeah, you <laughs> fucked up, bud. Yeah, he wasn't expecting that one. So he was actually charged with the premeditated homicide in the deaths of Nellie Donworth, Alice Marsh, Emma Shrivel, and Matilda Clover. He was also charged with the attempted murder of Lou Harvey, as well as extortion, and was moved to Newgate Prison. So he fucked himself up. Yeah. Pretty hardcore. And with the added extortion, it was probably unsuccessful. It was totally unsuccessful. (laughs) He's so stupid. So Justice Hawkins stated that Cream had been convicted of a, quote, most terrible crime, a murder so diabolical in its character, fraught with so much cold-blooded cruelty that one dare hardly trust oneself to speak of the details. The torture inflicted on Clover was an unparalleled atrocity. He told Cream a crime that can be expiated. Expiated. Expiated? Yes. It's like it can only be... Like explained? Well, it could only be... It can be expected... This is a very hard word for me for some reason. (laughs) Expiated only by your death. Like... You know oh. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's how you're going to pay for it. Exactly. He ordered Cream return to Newgate to await execution. And he said, may the Lord have mercy upon your soul. Which I always love when they say that. It gives me chills for some reason. So, because that's the only person that's going to have any mercy on you at this point. Right, exactly. Well, the Lord is not really a person, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So Cream's world was now a 14 by 8 foot stone box. Coconut matting shielded his feet from the cold floor. The only furnishings were a small table, a stool, a bed, a Bible, and a hymn book. A window was set high in the wall so prisoners could not look into the prison courtyard, and they could not see the shed where condemned men were to be hanged. Yikes. It was all in one place. And I'm I know surprised we, they couldn't see it. And we talked about Newgate in another episode, and I can't remember who it was that got... Was it Birkin here? It might have been. And they were taken down to be hanged there yeah, at Newgate. Yeah, that sounds right. So we right. talked about it many times. Cream was scheduled to die on November 15th of 1892. Of course, Madame Tussauds. <laughs> got to get that wax she, figure. She got her la- her wax figure added to her museum in the likeness of Cream to its chamber of horrors within days of his conviction. Oh, so weird. It just it's just so great. <laughs> it's always Madame Tussauds. So Cream rose from bed about 7 a.m. on November 15th, 1892. He picked a breakfast of eggs, bread, and tea, and then he slipped on the black coat and brown trousers that he had worn at trial. I thought this was funny. He was actually wrapping a shirt collar around his neck. When the guard told him, I wouldn't put that on this morning if I were you. No shirt collar. That's where the noose goes. Yeah. The prison chaplain arrived at 8 and invited him to seek God's forgiveness. They huddled for 45 minutes, but Cream didn't say much. Yeah. He finally did make a short statement that sounded like a confession, but offered no specifics. He said, quote, that he prayed God to forgive the crimes. Mm -hmm. That's all he said. 
James, not my crimes, the, the crimes. crimes. Yeah, R- let, let me like of their they're outside of him. May God forgive the crimes that have nothing to do with me. Right. James Billing- Billington, London's executioner, later came and secured Cream's arms behind his back with leather straps. As he worked, Cream thanked the governor and his guards for their kindness, saying, quote, you all have made the last two days amongst the happiest of my life. What? I don't know. That's Cream for you. <laughs> I don't know. Weirdo. I don't even know what to say to that. They're like, okay, dude. Yeah. That's fine. Cream was led down the long hall at Newgate Prison called Dead Man's Walk, which I know we've talked about. Executed criminals were buried beneath the flagstone floor, a single letter carved into the wall, which was the initial of their surname, served as a grave marker for each person. That's all you get. That's all you get. It took about a minute to reach the gallows, the gallows shed on the opposite side of the courtyard, so not a long walk. Mm -hmm. It was raining outside that day. Outside Newgate's high walls, people had begun to gather an hour earlier, even though they would not be allowed to witness his final moments. They still gathered. It was they just wanted to be there. Up to five thousand people. It was the biggest crowd the to fuck? assemble in London for a hanging since public executions were banned in the eighteen sixties. So weird. I will yeah. never understand that. I believe people still gather outside when there is an execution happening. With signs and they're on the news and everything. Oh yeah, I guess it's you're the right. for and the against all the time. Right. It still happens. It's a thing. It's a total thing. It's human nature, apparently. I would never. You never catch me. First of all, you never catch me at d- holding a sign for anything. <laughs> I will not hold a sign. I no refuse. sign holding. No, not even at a at a sports game. No way. <laughs> you won't catch me. I love it. So cream flanked by his guards, reached the shed shortly before 9 a.m. Inside was a hemp rope an inch in diameter and tied into a noose, dangled from links of heavy chain bolted to a beam. The chaplain says, I am the resurrection and the life, as they entered the brick-lined room. Billington strapped Cream's legs and pulled a white hood over his face and then slipped on the noose. The prison bell tolled at 9 the chimes of nearby St. Paul's Cathedral, which I've been to, is amazing. It claimed to mark the hour. In the midst of life, the chaplain continued, we are in death. Billington pulled a lever. The trapdoor under Cream's feet slammed open with a thud that reverberated through the prison. His body fell five feet before the rope pulled tight, snapping his neck. The prison doctor descended into the pit below the scaffold and checked his left wrist for a pulse. There was none. So he died immediately. A black flag was hoisted above the prison, signaling that the executioner's work was done. The crowd erupted in cheers, applause, and laughter. Wow. The body remained suspended for another hour. His body would be interred beneath the flagstones of Dead Man's Walk, and Thomas Cream would receive his own letter chiseled into the wall. So this dead man's walk is where they actually physically walk over to get to the shed. Yes. Wow. That's some symbolism. It is. You're a dead man walking. Just like that. There is a movie called that, right? Dead man walking. And that's really what it means. It's that walk from your cell to your death. Well, that was also the Green Mile. And the Green Mile. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I love that movie. It's a very good movie. So the Gallo... Okay, so there was this gallows confession, apparently, mm-hmm. that as he was dropping, 
he started to say, I am Jack the, and then the door. What? And he went kaplink and died. Okay. So he could have been Jack the Ripper? Okay, let's talk. Let, let's unpack this. Oh, no. My favorite corporate term. The purported Gallows Confession first appeared in a few American newspapers in January 1902. A brief item attributed to the London Chronicle reported that Cream's executioner, James Billington, had heard the words, I am Jack, and had claimed to be the man who hanged the Ripper. So the executioner was like, this is what he said, he's the Ripper, blah, blah, blah. The reports appeared after Billington's death, though, and attracted little attention at that time. No other witnesses to the execution came forward to corroborate this, but the story was repeated over the years in accounts of cream of cream's crimes. Hmm. So that's why that one book is called I am Jack the. Okay. Okay. So these words have fueled more than a century of speculation that cream was Jack the Ripper. Cause there's some timing there, right? Mm-hmm. Newspaper reports, which surfaced a decade after Cream's execution, claimed that these were his last words, uttered as the trap was sprung in the execution shed at Newgate Prison. So, like, wow, what perfect timing. I'm jacked up. (laughs) I mean, come on. I mean, it's a little crazy. So, there was one biographer, though, that conjectured that Cream was so frightened as he was about to be hanged that he lost control of his bodily functions, and he was actually saying, I am ejaculating. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Wait. You didn't see that coming, did you? That guy's a comedian, right? (laughs) I don't know. He was a... a, It's a biographer. He's a nowadays biographer that has a... (laughs) comedy podcast because there's no fucking way (laughs) i mean if those really are your last words i mean come on that's awesome first of all (laughs) the most i mean unsexy moment of your life is probably the day you get hanged i I can't imagine so yeah maybe shitting your pants i don't know about ejaculating that doesn't make (laughs) Yeah. He's trolling. I am ejaculating, which could have been mistaken for I am Jack the. No way. <laughs> this is not this is not a game of mad gab. Okay. <laughs> this no. I love it. I'm though. not buying it. <laughs> so Jack the Ripper killed in 1888, and then they stopped all right. All those stopped. Cream was in Joliet prison in 1888. Okay. And was not released until 1891. Well, that's problematic. There was a bizarre theory going around, because, you know, bizarre theories are fun, Mm -hmm. but there's a reason they're called bizarre. Yeah. (laughs) There was a bizarre theory that he somehow had a doppelganger that was actually serving his time in Joliet, while he had somehow made it over to England and was killing people as Jack the Ripper. Okay, no. No. So most Ripper experts have dismissed Cream as a suspect, and I believe rightly so. I don't think so. You know. It is a fun thing to think about. It is. Now- did Cream know about Jack the Ripper? Absolutely. Did the crimes committed by Jack the Ripper somehow inspire Cream? I think so. Probably, yeah. Yes. Um, he so talked maybe, about Jack the Ripper even before he was caught and executed. So maybe that could have just been his exclamation of who he idolized. 
It could have been. Or like, I'm Jack the Ripper. His one last jab at, I mean, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I truly don't think that it works out. Like, I mean, maybe he said it as, like, not a literal thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I am one. I of- am ejaculating. <laughs> That's so stupid. That's your. That's the thing you're gonna say right before you die. That just seems so weird. And why would you say it? Why would you? Yeah. Was there any evidence that that happened? Uh, well, no, who knows? <laughs> None that I there read. There would be some physical evidence there. I don't think so. Well, anyway, the magnitude of Cream's crimes will never be known with certainty. In a span of 15 years, he was convicted of two murders, stood trial for a third, and faced charges of killing three more people. He was the prime suspect in four other poisonings. Surviving court records and press reports make a convincing case that he was guilty of all 10 of these homicides. He probably was. He likely tried to kill Louisa Harvey, Lou. Yes. And people who were sickened after taking medicine he provided. So I'm sure he made a lot of other people sick that just didn't die. Right. This is my theory. Well, you got to test your formulas. Exactly. Right. And really, this just likens back harkens back to the Butterbox babies, in my opinion, because it's the same situation. Women sought out his help as a doctor. Yes. The sexism, the inequality of the times, isolation of sex workers and pregnant unwed women, uh, they just made them so easy to target. Mm -hmm. They came to cream seeking an illegal abortion or medicine to induce a miscarriage in order to escape the stigma or, quote-unquote, the living death, as it was called back then, of having a child out of wedlock, which is just mind-boggling to me. And he preyed upon them, and the choices they had were so few. Mm-hmm. Plus, he actively seduced them and then treated them like a burden once they no longer served his needs. He's a so literal gross. piece of trash. Yeah, gross. His wax figure was removed from Madame Tussauds in the 1960s to make room for more notorious and modern-day murderers. I'm sure you'd be happy to hear that. When Newgate Prison closed in 1902, shortly before its demolition to make way for a new building to house the Central Criminal Court, the Old Bailey of today, the remains of executed prisoners were disinterred and moved to London's Municipal Cemetery northeast of the city center in Manor Park. So Cream now lies in an unmarked grave in Section 339. Hmm. Two of Jack Ripper's victims, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Ann Nichols, are also buried on the grounds, interestingly enough. The case of drug samples that Cream brought with him from America, because he had this big sample of drugs that he would tout, that he was just such a great doctor with all these things. Right including a vial of strychnine, went on public display in London in 2015 as part of an exhibit of artifacts stored in Scotland Yard's Black Museum. Put that on your list. We're going. (laughs) I want to go there. The most chilling reminder of Cream's horrific crimes can be found in the cemetery in Garden Prairie, Illinois. I'm going to post a picture of this. Mm. A headstone marks Daniel Stott's grave, erected, they say, by his friends long ago, under cover of darkness. Hmm. It reads, died June 12th, 1881, poisoned by his wife and Dr. Cream. Dang. It literally says that. I'll post a picture. Wow. So do you think maybe she left and changed her name? I would think so. Yeah, I would. Because this was probably erected very soon after he died. Right. 
So that is the story of That's Dr. Thomas Neal Cream. And wow. if anyone poisons me, you need to go under cover of darkness and place that on oh, my I'll headstone do it in broad day- immediately. I'll do it in broad daylight. I'll do that in broad daylight. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't discriminate against what I put I put on a gravestone. Yeah, it needs to be good stuff. Yeah, people will know. Yeah, so it's very interesting. So I kind of want to visit his grave too. So we have so many things on our list, but it is a very interesting story, mm-hmm. and I'm glad that he was caught. I'm still pissed that he was given a pardon. People, yeah, what the fuck, Governor? Yeah, I mean, people would have lived. Yeah, it's it's quite sad that that happened. Like a lot of people would have lived. A two year old grew up without his mother. Like it's just, ugh. Yeah. it makes me sad. But you made a good drink for it today. <laughs> That's for sure. I often wonder how politicians live with the decisions they've made. I don't think they look at the full picture. I also don't think that they have a conscience. So, oh. Could be right. <laughs> that, so I think they probably them sleep. some fighting words there. They probably <laughs> sleep just fine. <laughs> they probably and I don't do. mean one side or another. I mean all of them. Uh, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's a blanket statement. Yes. <laughs> well, you want to tell everyone where to find us? Yes. If you'd like to send us an email, we're killerspiritspod at gmail dot com. We're on Instagram at killerspiritspod, where you can find drink pictures and pictures of the historical stuff from the episode. We're also on TikTok at killerspiritspod. Um, what else? You can check out our Patreon, patreon.com backslash killer spirits pod. We're going to be doing a sort of a few like mini series for Patreon only. So So I'll bring that up a couple more times in following episodes, but, um, we're going to do the pirate series. So I started with the pirate initial episode. I'm going to be doing some like short mini episodes for Patreon only. We will not be releasing them here. Yes. Um, and then whatever other mini series we decide to do. Yeah. We got plans. We got plans. We got plans, yo. <laughs> and then um, this is episode 43. Yes. So we'll have the recipe book coming out, episode 50. I can't believe we're almost at episode 50. Oh, and speaking of recipe book, if you would like to check out our merchandise, we're on Etsy. And our shop is just called Killer Spirits Pod. We have yeah. t-shirts, coffee cups, um, some really good products. Yeah. So check us out. And go rate and review. Yeah, rate and review us. We love you guys. Bye. Bye.